Good morning. How are we? That's loud. Well, that is very loud. Let's get that turned down just a smidge. If you have your Bibles, grab them, and let's turn together back to the text that Noah read for us from Mark chapter 15. We're going to keep walking together with Jesus through uh, Mark's account of the gospel. Martin Luther, who is a famous pastor and theologian who was at the center in many ways of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, famously wrote that the gospel is so important and yet it's so easily forgotten that it must be continually beaten into our heads. And I know in my own life that that is exactly the case, that the gospel is so important, and yet I suffer from a condition called spiritual amnesia, where I constantly forget the gospel. Like a bucket with a hole in the bottom, the gospel very easily flows out of my mind and out of my heart, and I forget And I'm guessing that for many of us this morning, you suffer from the same condition. And so here's what I want to do, as graciously as possible. I want to beat the gospel into your head and into your heart this morning. The gospel, simply put, is the good news about Jesus. The good news that Jesus Christ is the king. And that in his life, in his death, in his resurrection... In his ascension, he has accomplished absolutely everything that's necessary for your life and for your salvation. And this morning, I want to take that truth and I want to beat it deep into your hearts. And I want to beat it deep into your heads. And here's why. Because the gospel is the, capital T-H-E, story of the world. It's the story of the world in which you live. It's the story of your life, and the gospel is the only story that you can connect your life to that will cause your life to have any real meaning and any real significance. The gospel is the only story that you can live out that will cause you in this life and in the next to live the good life. So this morning, we all desperately need a fresh reminder of the gospel. We need the gospel to be beaten into our hearts and into our heads. If you've been with us for the past year, we've been walking with Jesus through Mark's gospel. And in the past couple of weeks and in the remaining month of Mark's gospel, we're reaching the climax of Jesus' ministry and of his mission Noah read for us a few minutes ago the text that we're going to look at together of Jesus before the council of before Pilate where he is ultimately condemned and sent to the cross. And this morning as we dive in, I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus. There's a lot going on in this passage that we could get confused by, that we could get uh, distracted by. I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the main character. Everything is revolving around him. And here's how I want to frame up our time this morning. I actually took this from a book that I was reading earlier this week by a guy named Danny Aiken. I love the way that he framed up this passage, and I want to do it the same way. In verses 1 to 5, I want us to see Jesus' silence. Silence, 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 to 15, I want us to see Jesus' substitution. Jesus' silence and Jesus' substitution. And I ultimately ultimately want us to see how the silence of Jesus 
and how the substitution of Jesus contribute to our salvation. So let's dive in together to Mark chapter 15. Uh, First, in verses 1 to 5, Jesus' silence. And what's fascinating about this encounter that we have here of Jesus before Pilate is that Jesus' silence is utterly deafening. He says nothing, and it's deafening to the people around him. Even when given a chance to respond to the accusations that are put forward, other than simply affirming Pilate's simple question, are you the king of the Jews, we're told that Jesus makes no further answer to the point where Pilate is amazed. He's astonished that Jesus would respond this way in the face of where in Luke's gospel we're told they hurdle uh, accusation and charge one after another against him. And I don't know about you, but had I found myself in Jesus's position, I would have spoken up. If I knew I was innocent of a laundry list of crimes, even currently in modern day, if they drug me before the judge and said, you're accused of this and this and this and this and this and this, and I knew I didn't do it, I would be like, hey, can I, can I have a few minutes to try to clear my name, to speak? Can I get a lawyer? But Jesus doesn't do that. It's interesting. Jesus remains quiet. Even when given a chance to speak, he refuses to speak. He refuses to clear his name. He refuses to argue the charges against him. This forces us to ask the the question, why? Why did Jesus respond this way? And the simple answer that I want you to hear this morning is, is in the fact that Jesus knew exactly who he was. And Jesus knew his mission. This is Good Friday morning where we are, where we find Jesus. He's on his way to the cross. In a few short hours, he'll be crucified, suffering the wrath of God. The world will go dark. And surely that morning, Isaiah chapter 53 was in his mind. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus came about the suffering servant who would come in God's name and accomplish salvation for God's people. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, it says this, listen, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knows that Isaiah 53 is ultimately about him. Jesus knows that he is that suffering servant who has come to rescue God's people from the weight of their sin. Jesus knows who he is, and Jesus knows his mission. He isn't thinking of himself. He's not thinking of his reputation. He's not thinking of his own life. No. He's thinking of the Father's will. He's thinking of the plan hatched before the foundation of the world that has been hurtling downhill at mock speed to this very day. He's thinking about the joy that's set before him. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation to the praise and glory of his Father in heaven. Jesus had been telling his disciples that this day was coming. 
This didn't sneak up on Jesus. Jesus isn't wondering what's happening. Jesus isn't paralyzed in fear or in self-loathing. Jesus isn't helpless. He could do something if he wanted to. This is the same Jesus who a few hours before in the garden as he's being betrayed told his disciples, don't you know that I could call down legions of angels from my father to rescue me? But just as he didn't in the garden, so he doesn't now. Jesus knows that he can't defend and save himself and at the same time save and rescue us. It's one or the other. It's him or it's us. This has always been the path ahead. This is the battle that he fought the night before in the the garden praying, not my will, but yours be done. To defend himself would be to forfeit your salvation, to forfeit the Father's will, and this was a reality that he was unwilling to imagine. So he sat in silence. He received every false accusation, and he knew that they were false of him, but that they were very true of you and me, the very ones for whom he came to suffer and die. What's interesting is that the main charge that sticks is that Jesus has made himself a king. He set himself up as a king. The Jews could not receive that. Pilate and Rome could not receive that. And isn't this the very heart of sin? Isn't this the root of all sinfulness? That we want to be our own kings, that we make ourselves our own kings. That at our core, as Noah said, and as we confessed, each of us seeks to live free from God's rule. This was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They thought they made better kings than the Lord, and therefore they abandoned his word, and they decided on their own what was right and good. And this is the gospel, that Jesus... The true and better Adam, the true king, was condemned for Adam and for his lineage, for you and me, not for his own treason, not for his own tyranny, but for mine and for yours. Like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. The silence of Jesus in the face of his accusers is a keystone on the path to your salvation. Save himself and he would forfeit us. Only in his silence, only in accepting the charges brought against him, in accepting the weight of our sin upon him, could he be who he knew he was, our Savior? And could he accomplish the reason for which he came, our salvation. Jesus is not a victim here. Jesus is not simply being ramrodded by a kangaroo court. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the suffering servant, the silent savior king of you, his people. His silence is part of our salvation. Nothing else on that morning would have gotten the job done. And in the face of accusations, because you were in his mind, Jesus remained silent. 
But I want us to see it's not simply Jesus' silence. He goes on from there. In verses 6 to 15, we see Jesus' substitution. And I love this. This is one of the most clear pictures that the Bible gives us where Jesus is substituted in the place of sinners. Mark records for us that Pilate apparently at his own behest, had an annual custom during the celebration of Passover, a Jewish celebration, where he would release back to the people uh, one prisoner that he had in his custody. And we're told that in prison at that day, there was a notorious criminal, a man named Barabbas, who had been convicted of murder and of insurrection. That is an attempt to overthrow the government. He staged a coup. He's an enemy of the king, a tyrant, convicted and condemned to die. The story goes that Pilate asked the crowd, which of these men do you want me to release to you? Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, the notorious criminal? We're told that the religious leaders, they stir up the crowd and ask for Barabbas to be released instead. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He says that on multiple occasions. But we're told in verse 15 that he doesn't have the courage uh, to do what's right. So he releases Barabbas, the criminal, and Jesus, the spotless lamb of God in whom there is no deceit, is convicted and sent to die. What a picture of the heart of the gospel. The enemy the convicted enemy of the king is released and set free while the utterly innocent and righteous son of God is condemned. This is the good news on display for us here this morning. I don't want us to miss some of the clear gospel details that Mark records for us. I'm doubting that many of you, I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar, uh, but the word Barabbas in Hebrew literally means son of the father. Bar means son, and Abba means father. Barabbas, son of the father. So the son of the father, the convicted enemy, the tyrant who has shaken his fist at the king. And on the other hand, we have Jesus, the true son of God. And in this interchange... The guilty son of the father is released and set free because the innocent son of God is condemned to die. Barabbas' crimes are murder and insurrection. We hear that and we're like, wow, what a bad guy. And yet, are, are not these the exact crimes that you and I are guilty of? Was it not my sin Was it not your sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross to be condemned, to be delivered up to the wrath of God? Each of us have contributed to the unjust murder of the spotless lamb of God. It was our insurrection. It was our treason against God, our shaking our fist at him, against the king of kings and the Lord of lords, against our maker, against our Lord that causes each of us to stand condemned apart from Jesus. If you find yourself in this story, find yourself in Barabbas, a notorious and convicted criminal, 
an enemy of the king. But don't stop there. Because Barabbas may have begun this story in chains, but that's not where he finishes. What's interesting is we're not told anything else about Barabbas in the rest of the Bible. Nothing. This is it. This one simple story. The final words that we hear about Barabbas are in verse 15. That Pilate, trying to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas. It'll be cool to see one day when we get to glory if Barabbas got what was going on. And if Barabbas realized, like one of the thieves on the cross, that wow, this man is who he says he is. If we can hear his story one day, that will be interesting. This word released, Barabbas was released, is a really interesting one. It can carry with it the simple idea that you're just set free from something. So in that way, Barabbas had chains on him. The chains were removed. He was released. But in the Bible, it actually carries with it most often a deeper sense. It means acquittal. It means forgiveness of a debt. It's a word that talks about salvation. Every single one of us who know Jesus has been released from sin and from death, from the weight of our sin, from the punishment that each of us deserves. Barabbas wasn't just released from prison. His record was wiped clean. He was forgiven and acquitted and therefore would live and be treated as though he never committed the crimes that he did in fact commit. This is the gospel. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen to this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin wasn't simply dismissed. It wasn't simply ignored. God is holy and just. God hates sin. And he's bound in his character to judge it and to punish it. God didn't overlook our sin. He transferred our sin from our record to Jesus' record so that the spotless lamb of God on that morning was becoming sin for us. John Stott, the famous pastor and writer, said this, we are obliged to conclude that the cross was a substitutionary sacrifice. Christ dies for us. Christ died instead of us. The gospel is that Jesus has done what you and I could not do by substituting himself for us, sinners, condemned, guilty, in chains, awaiting death, by taking our sin upon him. So that if your faith is in Jesus, the last words that will be said of you is, and then Josh was released. He was set free. His record was wiped clean at the cross. And some of you need that reminder this morning. I certainly do. Some of you came in here this morning carrying guilt and shame, and it's heavy, and it's crushing you. And this morning, you need to look to Jesus. You need to look to the Son of God, the Lamb of God that's been substituted for you.
You need to hear the Father say to you this morning, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. You're forgiven. I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I remember it no more. I delight over you as a father delights over his children. You are forgiven. Because if your faith is in Jesus, that's true of you. That's who you are. Even though you carry suitcases of sin, Jesus says, I'll carry those. And he took him to the cross, and the record of debt that stood against you has been nailed and left there. Some of us came in this morning, and we weren't weighed down with guilt or shame, but we came in puffed up with pride. We think we've got it all together. We think we don't really need Jesus, or at best, he just contributes a little bit to a life that's already going pretty well. We've forgotten that apart from God's grace and mercy, we're all Barabbas, hopeless and helpless, condemned until the Son of God comes on the scene and takes our place. The good news is that the answer is the exact same for you. No matter where you find yourself this morning, the answer is look to Jesus. Cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus answers that prayer every single time. You simply need to cry out to him. So wherever you find yourself, if you're a human in here this morning, the answer is cry out to Jesus. Cry out in thankfulness and praise that he has saved you. Or cry out in desperation for that work of salvation to take place. We're about to sing one of my favorite songs. It's called Man of Sorrows. It really is a song about what we've just been discussing. Jesus' silence and Jesus' substitution. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to close your eyes. I promise I'm not going to sing the words. That wouldn't be near as worshipful. But I want to read these words to you. I want them to wash over you, and then we'll prepare to sing. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten mocked and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Father, we come 
And this morning we glory in the cross where your love was poured out. I pray that by your spirit you pour your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Remind us, remind us, Father, of the truth that you speak a better word than sin and death. Lord Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming and waking our hearts up to see. I pray that every person this morning would see you, Jesus. Fill us with a new song even now as we pray. And we commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.